Hello, this is Monocle Reads. I'm Georgina Godwin. Today I'm speaking to a British author and former music journalist. He's published 10 novels and the memoir The Scent of Dried Roses. For the last decade, he's been teaching, mentoring and lecturing writing at places such as the University of East Anglia, Brunel University, the Faber Academy and Guardian Masterclass. He is considered one of the most sought-after creative writing teachers in the UK. His new book is Yes, No, But Wait, which claims to reveal the one thing you need to know to write a novel. Tim Lott, welcome to Monocle Reads. Thank you. It's lovely to have you here and to have you face-to-face. It makes such a difference having people in the studio with us. And I, before we get on to how to write a novel, or indeed how perhaps nobody can tell you how to write a novel, let's just look back at your individual story, because you started off working in local newspapers. Oh, God, yeah. I, I had an apprenticeship in a local newspaper in the days when they had paid apprenticeships on local newspapers. To run through it very quickly, I started on the Uxbridge Gazette. At the age of 19, I was invited to have a job on Sounds magazine in London, a music journalist job. I did that for a couple of years, and I left and started my own music magazine called Flexipop, where they gave a little plastic flexi-disc away on the cup. I don't know if anybody remembers flexi-discs. What were they like? Singles? Yes, only they were very floppy. That's why they were called flexi-discs. They made of this very thin vinyl, and every issue we could give one away. They were playable just about, though I can't say that the sound quality was absolutely tip-top. But we we had Blondie and Jam and Adam and the Ants all doing sort of singles for us, so that was quite exciting. But, you know, I sort of got bored with all that, and then I went off and did a degree at the London School of Economics in the days when they would pay you to do a degree, especially if you're a mature student. Then I became a TV producer. What were you producing? I produced a a London Listings TV show. I, do you know, I can't remember what the hell it was called now. <laughs> Isn't that sad? Um, but uh, it, was, uh, it was just basically like time out on TV. And uh, I did that for a while. I then became a producer with the same company and quite quickly got sacked because, you know, I realised, or they realised, that although I had a very good imagination, I am appalling at organisation. So I quit that and then I didn't know what the hell I was going to do. started doing a bit of journalism. Then I wrote a memoir about growing up in working-class West London. That was The Scent of Dried Roses. That was The Scent of Dried Roses, about class and mental health, because my mother was, um, well, she was a suicide, basically. And you don't dismiss it this quickly, because it won the uh, Penn Ackerley Prize, and it was it's now a Penguin Modern Classic. Yes. It's a very important book. You know, once you've written a book, it tends to sort of get filed away somewhere in a cupboard in your mind. And... In fact, even before it's published, it's kind of filed away in a cupboard in your mind. It's done. It's out of the way. It's a bit like musicians who make an album and then, you know, then on to the next album. So I'm really, really pleased and grateful for the sort of attention it got and the praise it got. And it's sustained me through many a bleak period as a novelist, which is um, of which there are many, I should tell any aspiring novelists, even if you get published. It ain't an easy life. Uh but following that, um, I didn't know what else to do again, not for the first time in my life. I tried to convince my publishers to allow me to write a novel 
they didn't want me to. They told me to write a non-fiction book again because they said non-fiction writers and fiction writers were different breeds. So I tried to write a book about the election of Tony Blair on his campaign in 97. It was a disaster. The Blair campaign wouldn't let me anywhere near them. And they'd given me a big chunk of money to write it. So we didn't know what to do. So I said, go on, let me write a novel, please. Otherwise, you're not going to get your money back. And they, and they very reluctantly agreed to let me write a novel. Which so, won the Whitbread which first Which won the Whitbread, yeah. And um, also was shortlisted for quite a lot of other prizes. And that um, was White City Blues. Yeah. What was that about? White City Blue, actually. Often mis- misunderstood as White City Blues. Though it could have been called White City Blues. It was... Well, it's now the first in a trilogy of books about this character called Frankie Blue, hence White City Blue, who grows up in White City, hence White City. And it's really... I I started writing it with John Updike's Rabbit trilogy in mind, which is really, those who don't know the book, a really brilliant examination of ordinary middle-class American life throughout the 70s, 80s, 90s and so forth, and really one of my key reads. And... um, I wanted to do the same for an English character. So I, I sort of invented an everyman, Frankie Blue, and over the last 20 years I've taken him on a journey from that moment, which I think started in 19, 1999, and the last book, which came out last year, where Now We Are Forgiven, ends with the pandemic and him being locked down with his now teenage daughter. But it's like 100,000... It's like, let me see now, must be... 300,000 words long, massively unsuccessful, I should say. Um, but, uh, but I, you know, I enjoyed doing it. And uh, one of these days, I'm sure it'll be recognised for the immortal masterpiece that it is. But that time hasn't yet come. And we're, of course, going to come back and talk about that, yeah. about the, um, the huge importance of character. And, of course, you explore that. You see your character change over, the, over these three novels. But back to your, back to your career, I mean lots of awards along the way. You also did a couple of children's novels. I did. I tried it all in an attempt to make a living. I've written fantasy novels, children's novels, thrillers. I've written romances. You name it, I've tried it. And and one of the things that you you have to learn or perhaps not learn, unlearn, is if you want to be a successful novelist, you find a genre and you stick with it. That's not what I've done. You know, I've always shifted amongst genres because I get bored and I'm interested to challenge myself. So I try everything. And, you know, with some success. I mean, the thriller I wrote, The Seymour Tapes, which is about somebody who secretly videotapes his own family in the day when videotapes were the thing, has just been bought by Sony TV last week. So that was like 18 years ago. So things sort of pop up, you know, and come back and, and uh, surprise you sometimes. But, yeah, if you want to be a, have a consistent career as a, as a novelist, the first thing you have to do is sell yourself out as an artist. And what you do then is find yourself a little niche and knock out the same thing time and time again. That's the way to be a successful novelist. Or you be a celebrity, that's even easier. Just become a celebrity and they'll publish any old rubbish you you, um, you bring out. So there used to be a figure that was often quoted, which was that the average earnings of a British novelist was something like £11,000 a year. Sounds about right, yeah. (laughs) So, I mean, really, you're not going to be J.K. Rowling, let's be realistic, for most people. Well... It's not really a way to great riches, 
I've made a good living out of it personally, but that's because I started at a time when there was money in publishing. But even so, obviously, I was in like, you know, the smallest percentile, i.e. people who get published and people who are successful from the get-go. A lot of that money that I've made, which has been enough to sort of keep me going over the years, has been TV rights, film rights, and in the early days, translation rights. But more classically, if you're writing a novel to make money, then you're insane, basically, which is not a bad qualification for being a novelist. (laughs) But I think, you know, you're not going to make money. You might get published. I mean, even that's a pretty long shot. You know, I mean, but but, uh, I would think... uh, One of the things I'd like to say at some point in this interview, I may even say it now, is that um, the learn-to-write industry, the creative writing industry, which has become a behemoth. Is that how you pronounce it? Do you know, it's one of those problem words. I I, I usually avoid it because I'm never quite sure Yeah, I'm already regressing (laughs) saying it now. You know, it's become a really big thing. Uh Um, And it feeds off this huge desire people have to tell their stories and to become novelists for whatever reason, you know. And those reasons are complicated. And what I wanted to say was that the, the creative writing industry has essentially become a branch of the therapy industry. So people come to me so often with books and they are may or may not be good writers. Often they're not. And um, they want to tell their story. And it, it, this idea of telling your story, telling your personal truth is very popular and clearly it gives people a lot of satisfaction And there's nothing wrong with that. The only point I I would like to make, and I have made in my book, is that it's not the same as writing a novel. Mm. You know, I mean, they're they're very different things. They're very different kinds of of truths, I suppose. Mm. So why then teach writing? Necessity. You know, I had to make money. And there were plenty of opportunities out there to, to teach when you had a decent record. In writing, what I learned though when I started teaching is that you can get away with murder. I mean, I didn't have a clue how to teach writing, you know, but everyone assumed that I knew how to write because I'd written novels because I didn't know how to write at all. I mean, I, I I knew how to write unconsciously, but I had no idea how to what I was doing, you know, in a conscious level. I just sat down and wrote, and something came out, and you know, these novels appeared, you know, and I I struggled terribly with them. I didn't really know what techniques I was using. And this is one of the things I think is very wrong with the creative writing industry is that a lot of people who are teaching it, although they might well have published one or two novels, and that's the most most of them have published, they don't really know how to write novels. You know, they can write novels, but that's not the same thing. Understanding how to write a novel, the understanding the craft of novel writing is... Uh, something quite different because that's hauling up all your unconscious instincts which some people have but not many and many don't is hauling up those unconscious techniques and putting them on the table to to lay out as a kind of map and say look you know this can help you if you're trying to write a book it can't write the book for you and you're never going to write that book without a great deal of effort and application and imagination of your own But here's a few signs. Mm. So can anyone learn to write? Well, you know, you mean write fiction. 
Oh, write anything, I suppose. But, well, but I mean, everybody case, does, don't they? They're all taught in school. How but to, but to I write. mean, write write a good publishable novel. Can you go from a standing Can, start? No. <laughs> so, but this huge industry exists. Yes, because because everybody, everyone has a stake in believing that it's possible. And it, you know, I, my motto is: I cannot tell you how to write a novel, but I can make you a better writer. I can definitely do that. Whoever you are. I can take you closer to the ideal of being a writer. That's all I can do. Mm. You know, and if you're a good writer, I can make you a better writer. If you're a bad writer, I can make you a less bad writer. But that's all I can do. And, you know, writing novels is a very mysterious business. I mean, telling stories is a very mysterious business. Because where do they come from? You sort of pluck them out of the air in sort of in, in very invisible manifestation of something that's going on underneath the surface that you don't even know yourself. But I don't want to be too negative about it. I mean, you know, I, I myself publish on my Substack website is out there because I'm trying to explain to people some of the things I'm talking to you about today. And my Substack page is called Writing Boot Camp. And the reason it's called that is because it's about kind of no bullshit guide to, to writing. Um, which says very clearly, look, you know, this is not somewhere you want to go if you just want to have your ego stroked. Mm. And there are lots and lots of places out there. I've worked for a website which I fell out very badly with. We had a bit, because basically I would not play the game of telling everybody that they were wonderful, and that didn't go down very well. It didn't fit the business model of, mm. the, of the owner, and so. You know, she sacked me. I've been sacked a lot of times in my life. Um, she sacked me because... Well, she never told me why she sacked me, but I suspect it's because I didn't really... It's not that I wasn't unpleasant to anybody, but I never was. I'm massively tactful when it comes to speaking to people about their writing. So I know how close it to the heart it is, how sensitive people are. It's, it, that's why I talk about it being a therapeutic process. I would always be highly conscious of the emotional investment people put into their writing. What I will not do is tell people, this is great, you've got a lot of potential, and you're going to, you know, you've got a book in you. I, I won't do that. You know, mm. I'm not prepared to do that. Because it's a lie. And, you know, you're under tremendous pressure to do this because, because it's a win-win situation for both the teachers and in a sense for the students, because the students come away thinking, oh, no, I'm quite good. You know, and the teachers go away with a bunch of money in their pocket. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, it's a mutually abusive relationship, <laughs> you might say. And also the creative writing industry, you can certainly learn things from it, but there's too much out there. In other words, my book's called The One Thing You Need to Know. That's because... My ambition is to reduce the learning element to as small amount as possible because, you know, I have a 100 books on creative writing in my personal library. And taken all together, there's, there's... Let's say we try to analyse a piece of music, you know. I mean, one can intellectualise about it endlessly. And that's what people have done with writing. You can write about style, you can write about subtext, you can write about subplot, you can write about plot. You can, you can write, you know, there, there are maybe at least 100 subjects you can cover, but then you can't see the wood for trees. What matters in a story, as we will come to, I, I assume, is the plot and the character. Mm. Those And those are two sides of the same thing. 
And if you can master those, you've got a sort of starting point. That's all you've got, but you've got a starting point to let your imagination flare. I mean, there's been a lot written, and I think you, you actually you quote uh, McKee here on, on, on the death of plot and how plot doesn't really seem to matter to writers anymore, or at least it's not particularly fashionable at the moment. I'm guessing you would fundamentally disagree with that. No, I would definitely agree with that because I think um, that's one of the things I'm campaigning for is the reintroduction of plot to literary writers. I mean, plot's out there if you go and read a thriller yeah. or, you know, a detective novel or, you know, or, or, or a romance or a science fiction novel probably. In the literary world, which I kind of belong to, though I don't like that word because it's got so many connotations... Virginia Woolf-like connotations mm. of, you know, looking down one's nose at the world. I mean, I, I work in the non-genre area of writing. I don't write in a genre. I just write about people. And uh, I think the idea that what we would call non-genre writing, what I call non-genre writing, that has lost interest in plot a great deal. I mean, I you know, I occasionally dip... I don't often buy contemporary novels nowadays because I'm so disappointed by them so often, particularly in Britain. I'm much more fan of American novelists who still have an attachment to plot to some extent. Mm. But in this country, people rely so much on style, on theme, yes, to some extent character and voice. Plot seems to be something a lot of writers don't bother with too much. Why? Because it's really difficult. It's one of the hardest things you can possibly do. And it's it's one of the nicest things for... Nicest, I don't know if that's the right word, but one of the seductive things for writers is to think, oh, as Martin Amis and used to say that, you know, fuck the plot, that's for sort of schoolboys. I might have been Edinburgh O'Brien, I can't remember. But, I mean, it's, um, it's very tempting to go, yeah, yeah, I don't need the plot. <laughs> <laughs> How vulgar. Um, you know, yet for me, I love stories. I love stories. But nowadays I get most of my stories from TV because those people are schooled in storytelling in a way novelists are not, for the most part. You know, and therefore you get great TV dramas. And the, my book is, is based really, actually, after seeing Robert McKee, who is a film script editor, not novels, and John York, the TV producer who created EastEnders. And uh, these people understand the structure of story, mm. but novelists don't, and editors don't, interestingly. They're not... When you go to... To get a job in a publishing house, you go and do a degree in literature, and literature's creaking under the weight of sort of ancient postmodern theories about sort of... The death of the author, which always infuriated me because I'm not dead, you know, and um, and the idea that somehow writing is all about language, which it funny enough isn't. The language of of writing is action, is drama. Mm. You know, it's the, it's what happens that is the language of a novel, not what what is written. At least in my in my book, anyway. 
Well, talking about plot, because what you do is you explain how it should be in that classic three-act setup, and then you have various things like your inciting incident or whatever, your midway point, and you're, you're very good at just, you dissect that for us, and we begin to see a shape. You also explain things like a kind of structural diamond and various other things, but say that you don't particularly agree with that complicated form, and you boil it down very, very simply. That's what I'm trying to do. I mean, this is a sort of real life process for me because I didn't believe that there was any kind of shape to stories exactly. And it took me a lot of convincing that there was, you know, and in order to convince myself, I read an awful lot of uh, writing about writing. And eventually I came to the conclusion that... There is a shape, there has to be a shape, because it's the way that human beings pass reality. P-A-R-S-E, mm. pass reality. You know, it's thesis, antithesis, synthesis. Act one, act two, act three. Man goes, uh, man is outside the woods, goes into the woods, has an adventure in the woods, comes out of the woods. You know, this is the basic shape of storytelling, at its most basic. You mentioned this thing, the story diamond, which is a hilarious diagram that I saw on the internet once, which is possibly, I mean, it could be out of the realms of some advanced nuclear physics program in the, its complication, whereas this... Interestingly, the guy who created it did work in astrophysics, I think. But it's, uh, unfortunately, this being on radio, you, you can't see it. But it's uh, this unbelievably complicated diagram that tries to reduce all the different paradigms of storytelling to one diagram. And you can see how insane it is. And the reason it's because it's massively complicated. And the reason it's so insane is because what you're doing is you're taking something mysterious and unconscious and in some sense is sacred, and trying to turn it into a geometrical diagram. Mm. And you cannot do that. But you can do that at a very, very simple level. Beyond that, you're getting seduced by the idea that you can substitute technique for imagination, and you cannot. You can use technique if you keep it at the back of your mind, but if you put it at the front of your mind, which is what creative writing teachers all too often do, you're in trouble because you're trying to do something rationally and analytically, which is not a rational and analytic process. It's an organic process. It's You grow a book. You mm. don't make a book. Mm. You grow a book. What about that idea that sometimes one is struck by divine inspiration, that, that producing a novel is somehow some kind of magical, mystical thing and you don't know where it comes from and it just pours out of mm. you? Mm. Is there any merit to that? Totally. That's exactly what it is. I mean, you know, where does a novel come from? You tell me. Where does a piece of music come from? You tell me. It doesn't come from anywhere. It comes from the beyond. You know, I mean, I'm not a materialist. You know, I think we live in a very mysterious place on this planet, you know, and I don't think we really know what's going on. The problem, we call it nowadays the unconscious or the subconscious. People used to call it God. It doesn't really matter what you want to call it, or the muses, mm. um, or the gods. The fact is there's a hidden side to human nature, and that's what you're trying to access when you're writing. And you're trying to harness that force, that unseen, unknown force. And, of course, if you just, if you just blurt it out, because it's there, 
you get on the road with Jack Kerouac, which is fine if you're Jack Kerouac, but you're not. <laughs> and anyway, that's been done once already and probably once is enough. Um, but that's kind of, this is my unconscious. <laughs> you know, what you need to do is take the material of your unconscious and mould it into a shape that you can reach other people with. And there are methods of channeling your unconscious mind and that's what I deal in, those methods of channeling. If you can get there, and a lot of people don't want to go there because the truth is your unconscious mind is a fairly disturbing place mm. and people don't like to sit in a room by themselves. Tim, despite everything you've been saying, which has been quite negative about the art of writing, this is a book for writers who really do need that guidance. As you say in the book, it's something that perhaps it's not a step-by-step, it's not a how-to guide, but if you keep these basic structures in your mind, it will make you a better writer. Well, yes, I'm completely shooting myself in the foot here by saying that. I mean, you know, my book is absolutely... I hope and is intended as a genuine help for people trying to write a book. It just doesn't overreach itself, that's all. You know, and by not overreaching itself, my hope is that it will therefore be useful because, you know, when they started the UEA course, the University of East Anglia, which was the first creative writing course, David Lodge would get his students and say, you know, you probably will forget 80% of everything that's said in this room, but the 20% of it will stick and that'll be absolutely crucial for you and i've kind of try and take out the 20 percent and say this is the important stuff mm. you know and if you read this you don't need to go on all these four-year courses of novel writing which are all very nice and you get lots of you know you get lots of feedback and pats on the back and you've got friends and things but if you want to be a novelist it's limited what you can learn But it is powerful, you know, and I really do want to say that there are incredibly positive things in my... Of course there are positive things. It's out there to help you to write. It's just shifting the responsibility away from the teacher onto the writer and saying there's only this much that you can be given. And I'm giving it to you here. You know, this is from years and decades of of writing and teaching. You know, this is what you need to know. And amazingly... Most of this stuff is not in most creative writing books. It's in, as I said before, books for screenwriters. But I've I've tried to take those dramatic principles and say, look, this is what you need to know to write a novel. And it's incredible because writing novel writing teaching, which is taught at quite a high literary standard in many ways, and yet when people come to me, they don't know Act 1, Act 2, Act 3. They don't know anything. You know, and they're, they're being asked to, you know... Think about mimesis and diegesis and, you know, like, well, you know, just just give me the basic shape of a story. You know, that man man walks along the road, falls in a hole, hole, has to get out again. That's They don't understand that. You know, they don't understand that it's all about going into the woods, as John York says, and learning something or not learning something, but something happens and you come out again changed or not changed or having been asked to change you know but there's a place a liminal place which is neither here nor there which you go into at the start of a book or a play and you you're in a safe place you go into an unsafe unknown place where chaos rules and then you come out the other side different that's storytelling
Well, to learn more about it, you need to read Yes, No, But Wait, The One Thing You Need to Know to Write a Novel. It's by Tim Lott. It's published by Swift. Tim, thank you so much for It's been a delight, and I hope people will look at my Substack page, timlott.substack.com. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to Monocle Reads. Thanks also to our producer, Nora Hull. And you can download this show and previous episodes from our website or your preferred podcast platform. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. <laughs>